The following programming is sponsored by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Positive Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Maria Gallagher, the Legislative Director. Hello, Maria. Hello, Bonnie. It's great to be with you today. Great to be with you today. We happen to have an outstanding guest one who is so knowledgeable and up to speed on all that is happening in the pro-life movement. Laura Echevarria, Communications Director and Press Secretary for National Right to Life, will be joining us to discuss several critical topics, including the leaked Supreme Court draft. In addition, Maria will fill us in on the status of pro-life measures in the state legislature. First, however, we'll begin our podcast with some inspiration. Have you ever known anyone who was so down, so far gone, so entangled in a web of vices that it would seem impossible for that person to ever recover a healthy and normal and productive life? If I had met Patricia Sandoval in her early 20s, that might have been my temptation to look at this drug-addicted, homeless, and very broken young woman, and to despair. She, She was so, so lost. It was when her parents divorced and her mother began delving into new age practices that were then introduced to Patricia that everything in Patricia's life began to unravel. Family relationships would grow volatile and she'd be forced out of her own home. In a search for affirmation, love, and security, Patricia engaged in a string of unhealthy relationships and years of substance abuse. She would lose her job, her car, and ultimately her home. And during that time, she would have three abortions. Patricia details all this in her 2017 book, Transfigured, Patricia Sandoval's Escape from Drugs, Homelessness, and the Back Doors of Planned Parenthood, a book that she co-wrote with Christine Watkins. It's a book I was drawn to read after hearing Patricia give her testimony last year at the National Right to Life Convention. It's a book I couldn't put down or even stop thinking about when I did. It's painful to read of Patricia's descent into such a broken life, but then slowly but surely she receives signs of hope, gestures of love, clarity of who she is and what she was created for, and to whom she ultimately belongs. She finds healing for her own abortions, healing that she resisted, that she didn't think she needed, but healing that ultimately gave her her life back. Patricia held on to so much shame about her past life and had no intention of sharing it with others, but she was called to do exactly that, and she answered that call. She found out that her own painful journey and recovery provided much needed hope and inspiration to so many others in desperate situations. Today, Patricia is an author, an international pro-life and chastity speaker, and the host of a weekly television program, Pro-Life Report on EWTN Espanol. 
In addition, she is a wife, a mother, and a believer that no one is beyond redemption, that anyone can be transfigured as she herself was. I highly recommend the book Transfigured by Patricia Sandoval. She and her story are truly an inspiration for our times. Maria. Thank you, Bonnie, for that inspiration. I'd like to take the opportunity to talk about pro-life legislation that is now before the General Assembly in Harrisburg. First of all, the Life Amendment. This proposed constitutional amendment would ensure that there is no so-called right to abortion or right to taxpayer funding of abortion under the Pennsylvania Constitution. It has been introduced as Senate Bill 956. It has been reported out of the PA Senate Health and Human Services Committee and is now awaiting action by the full Senate. Meanwhile, the Down Syndrome Protection Act would ban abortions for the sole reason of a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. It is known as House Bill 1500 and has passed the PA House. It is now awaiting action in the PA Senate. House Bill 118 is the Unborn Child Dignity Act. It would ensure the respectful interment of the remains of preborn babies who have died before birth. It has passed the PA House and is awaiting a vote by the PA Senate. House Bill 289 would require abortion centers to post results of state health inspections. It is awaiting action in the PA House Health Committee. This is just a sample of the pro-life legislation that is waiting in the wings in Pennsylvania. We commend our pro-life lawmakers for their hard work trying to protect preborn babies and their mothers from harm. Bonnie. Thank you so much, Maria. It is my honor to introduce today's guest. Laura Echevarria returned to her role as National Right to Life Director of Communications in June 2019. She previously served on the communications staff from 1994 to 2004 and as director of the organization's media outreach from 1997 to 2004. Ms. Echevarria has appeared on the CBS Evening News Fox News Channel, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, and PBS's NewsHour, among several other national and international television programs and newscasts. She's been quoted in various newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Boston Globe, as well as news services, various magazines, and other national, international, and local newspapers. Laura has been heard on local and national radio, including ABC Radio News, AP Network News, NBC Radio, CNN Radio, CBS Radio, and National Public Radio, and various talk shows around the nation. In addition, her writing has appeared in several local and national publications, including USA Today, National Review, The Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Human Life Review. Laura has been a radio announcer, a freelance writer and has been active in local politics. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in speech communications and has completed coursework towards a master's degree. Laura lives with her husband and three children, two of whom have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. We are delighted that Laura Echevarria can join us today. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, it's so nice to be here, thank you. So good to have you. Now, National Right to Life has been at the forefront of the pro-life movement for a long time. Can you share with our listeners a bit of the history regarding National Right to Life and the work that they do? Well, the National Right to Life Committee um, actually came out um, of 
uh, for, formed um, from the basis of several state groups that existed um, back in the late 60s. And what was happening, we were seeing some states um, start to change their state laws regarding abortion. And a number of state groups had formed, you know, parents, uh, individuals concerned about the issue started to form uh, state organizations, organizations to deal with the issue uh, in the state legislatures. And then it was felt that a national organization was needed to deal with the issue on the national level. And so the National Right to Life Committee was formed um, as a direct result. Uh, our oldest affiliate is the Virginia Society for Human Life. And um, the uh, Honorable Jalene Williams served as chairman of the board for years uh, of the National Right to Life Committee. And so there's a lot of history there, uh, a lot of rich history as a result of so many individuals who did so much work in the very beginning. And it's an honor, actually, to just step in the, in the shoes of some of the people who have come before us. How did you become involved in the pro-life movement? It was actually a series of events. I grew up pro-life. Um, my parents were pro-life um, and, and are pro-life, but there are certain events that took place in my life that really made me very conscious of the issue. Um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, there was a student in my speech class, and this was at a public high school, who did a uh, persuasive speech on abortion. And it really made me think about the issue from more than just a, a general concept, uh, something that was there that people talked about. He really talked about what happened in an abortion. And I don't think many people really think about that. And then I found out my uh, youth director uh, at church had been conceived as a result of a rape. And um, so, and he was greatly influential in my life. And then probably the thing that really, when I was in college, the two events that probably really made me um, solidify my beliefs. I had a professor in college who uh, was very pro-life and she was very influential. And then uh, we had a friend, I had two friends one summer in college, both tell me that they thought they were pregnant and one turned out not to be pregnant, but the other one sat in the car with my sister and me and told us that she was gonna to have to have an abortion. And our knee-jerk response, our first response was to say, no, absolutely not, you can't have an abortion. We'll do whatever we need to do to help you keep this baby, but you can't have an abortion. And um, that's what she needed to hear. And she didn't want one, you know, she was sitting in the car and she's just bawling because she wanted to keep the baby, but the circumstances were so awful. She didn't see how, she didn't see a way out and we gave her that way out. And so she was able to keep the baby. Um, and I think those were the events that really solidified it. And I was working at a Christian radio station right out of college and over the fax machine came a press release from National Right to Life. And I remember seeing the press release and thinking it would be really, really neat, very cool to be able to work for an organization that has such a tremendous impact. And I sent a resume in and that's what started everything. So, well, we're so glad you did because you've done a phenomenal job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So a big news story broke this week. Uh, we learned of a leak regarding the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health that indicates an overturn of Roe may be imminent. 
What is National Right to Life's response to this? Well, right now, um, the leak, the draft of Alito's opinion regarding uh, the Dobbs decision has been confirmed to be real, but it's dated from February the 10th. From what we understand, uh, Supreme Court justices usually lock in their votes by the end of April. Uh, they can change their mind. Um, so I wouldn't want to confirm that the votes they had in February are the same. Uh, knowing these justices and how they have voted on other issues, I would say it's very probable they are this, they are the same votes. Um, but this is a leak of a document and it's unprecedented. Uh, this has never happened before. Um, so there is an investigation going on trying to find out what happened because there's a very select group of people at the Supreme Court who have access to this information. Um, but what I can say is we are waiting for the court to actually issue their opinion. Um, they could do a couple of things here now that this draft has come out. The suggestion has been made and they have done this before where the majority opinion is released early and minority opinions roll out at later dates. And so that is something that they could do, but we have not gotten any kind of confirmation from the court at this time, what they do plan to do now that this has happened. And why is the Dobbs case before the US Supreme Court so important? The Dobbs case is based on a Mississippi law that would restrict abortions or prevent abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court often looks at the viability issue as kind of the cutoff, but National Right to Life has already made inroads regarding the viability issue with the Supreme Court. The Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, for example, was deemed to be constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that procedure straddles the viability line uh, because it occurs in the fourth and fifth month of pregnancy. Primarily, that's when that procedure is done. So we've already uh, made inroads as far as the court was concerned regarding viability. So the court, when they took a look at the Dobbs case, the question they said they were going to answer, the one that they were taking up was whether or not states had the ability to restrict abortions before viability. And they said that they would answer that question. And so it's it's very significant, significant and very important because up to this point in time, a lot of the laws that we have had on the books, the ones that have been deemed constitutional have been confined to post viability. And viability is a line that moves based upon what medical advances we've been able to make and how much earlier babies survive now is completely different from what it was in 1973. What has been the record of National Right to Life affiliates in passing pro-life legislation on the state level? Oh my, uh, we have seen probably hundreds of laws passed in the states over the years. And I think people need to understand that even with Roe and Casey being on the books, there has been so much we've been able to do, especially when the Casey decision came down. We have been able to get parental involvement and parental consent laws, women's right to know legislation, um, the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, uh, both on the national and the state levels. Uh, we've been able to pass uh, the Violence Against Unborn Victims um, legislation in a, a number of states, pain-capable legislation where procedures 
um, are not allowed after a baby is capable of feeling pain. So these are all laws that we have seen passed on the state level. Um, one of the challenges we have faced because of Roe and because of Casey and because of Supreme Court rulings has been that we can get these laws sometimes passed in a state, especially laws where we're really pushing the envelope in terms of what the court has allowed. And then a lower court will enjoin that law based on Roe and Casey. And then it doesn't go any further than that because the pro-abortion groups will immediately go into court and ask for the law to be enjoined and then a lower court will enjoin it. And that's as far as it gets. And so we, we have been waiting. You always have to wait to um, get a law before the Supreme Court. And at any time, the Supreme Court could look at Roe and Casey if they have an abortion law in front of them. And we saw the court come back in Hellerstedt. We saw the court come back in the, um, in the Missouri case. We've seen them lately, or excuse me, Louisiana case. We've seen them lately come back and issue very narrow rulings. Um, but after these new justices were added to the, to the Supreme Court, there was a great deal of hope that in the Dobbs case, we would see something different. And again, I'm not necessarily wanting to get into predicting things, but the fact that the Alito decision in February or his Alito draft in the Alito draft in February does indicate that they are going to be over overturning Roe and uh, by extension Casey. Uh, but again, we have to wait for the court to actually issue their opinion. Well, as we prepare for a possible change in the law, we are also seeing change in how abortions are done. Can you address the increased threat that chemical abortion poses to women and their children? Yes, this is actually going to be an issue, regardless of what happens with the Supreme Court and with Dobbs, this is going to be a major issue for us um, post row or even if they modify it, regardless of what happens. We at this point in time do know that about half of almost half or about half of all abortions now are done using the chemical abortion method. Uh, what people may remember um, initially was called RU46 because it came out of France and that was the drug name. Um, it's, the drug itself is mifepristone. It is a two drug abortion process and it can be very dangerous for the woman who takes the drugs. Um, mifepristone, the way it works, mifepristone itself blocks, it is the first drug and it blocks progesterone, which is very necessary to maintain the pregnancy, especially in the early days of pregnancy before the placenta forms. It is a naturally occurring hormone, but when a woman becomes pregnant, those levels of progesterone increase to protect the baby, to nourish the baby, to continue the pregnancy. Then when the placenta forms, the placenta takes over most of the product, production, production of progesterone at that point in time. Um, the second drug, misoprostol, once um, RU46 or mifepristone blocks the progesterone, misoprostol then is used to cause uterine contractions. So mifepristone, the first drug, actually kills the baby because it blocks progesterone, but misoprostol causes contractions. And it is known that later in pregnancy, misoprostol has been known to cause uterine rupture and things along those lines. And so it's not, it's contraindicated or it's not allowed later in pregnancy. The danger we are seeing right now is the FDA allows this drug, this abortion method 
um, up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. But there have been groups formed, online um, services, so to speak, uh, websites uh, that are offering the drug to women sight unseen. Uh, the drugs are coming from India, from different drug manufacturing locations that the FDA has not seen, has not signed off on. So not only do you have a dangerous, potentially dangerous drug uh, combination that can cause just under normal, quote unquote, use, it can cause excessive bleeding. Uh, women have ended up in the hospital from hemorrhaging. Um, if a woman does not have uh, an ultrasound, if she has an ectopic pregnancy, this will not have any impact on an ectopic pregnancy. So she would still need surgical intervention uh, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. So there are so many instances where it could cause uh, a life-threatening event for a young woman who takes these drugs. And then to compound that issue, we have now seen uh, pro-abortion groups really push this and push this in a way that it's outside the parameters that the FDA established. Like I said, websites, there's so many different websites right now where a young woman can just log on. She can give them the information that she wants. She pays for it and they ship it directly to her door. And uh, it's going to turn out to be a huge problem. And unfortunately, these organizations, pro-abortion organizations are also telling these young women, if you end up in the emergency room, Tell them you're having a miscarriage. Don't tell them that you took these drugs, which compounds the issue if she actually is uh, having a life-threatening event. And I, I think that it's also very traumatic. It, it must be extremely traumatic for this woman to be inside her own house or apartment taking these drugs that end up killing her preborn child. I, I can't even imagine what that must be like. Keep in mind that when she's home, she will have an abortion at home. And again, this goes back to many people don't realize what happens in an abortion. They don't realize that at seven weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, you're talking about a fully formed baby with fingers and toes that you can see. And for many young women, they're going to be a, having an abortion at home where they will see this perfectly formed baby when they have the abortion. And for many young women, that is going to be traumatizing. Switching gears here, how is the pro-life generation making its mark in the 2020s? I think that what we are seeing now we are seeing a younger generation coming up um, I, every time, like at the March for Life. Um, I know last year we were at the Supreme Court uh, for the Louisiana, for the uh, Dobbs case. And when we're standing in front of the court, there's so many young people, so many young women at the court. It is just phenomenal and fantastic to see this generation coming up so pro-life and recognizing the need to stand up for life. And I think that we are raising up a pro-life generation. Um, polling data just came out yesterday from Fox News Channel showing that even though a majority of Americans say that Roe should stand, we also know the majority of Americans don't understand what Roe actually did. So in the breakdown of questions, 
It was showing a majority saying that abortion shouldn't be allowed after 15 weeks. In fact, it was showing a sizable, and if I'm not mistaken, majority saying that abortion shouldn't be allowed after six weeks. So the numbers were far greater than that initial question, do you think that Roe should be overturned? That question does not indicate where people fall on this issue. And so breaking down those numbers, we definitely saw a majority saying no abortions after 15 weeks, very limited in terms of what people think should be allowed. And so we're seeing a wave of change and we need that moving forward because as we, if things come down the way it looks like they're going to come down and Roe is overturned, this will go to the states and we will be working to enact legislation on the national level, but we'll be working in the state legislatures and we need people to come out and we need them to vote pro-life. It is vital now more than ever to have those pro-life legislators in those legislatures in the states because we will need them to pass pro-life legislation. We will need them to protect women and babies. We will need them to be active on this issue in the legislatures. One thing that really comes across to me is your compassion. Um, especially your compassion for women. And I'm wondering, how do you respond to women who are scared because they've gotten a uh, dire prenatal diagnosis? They're afraid that their children are going to be born with special needs and, and they don't know how they're going to deal with that. I think that every mom has the ability to dig down deep and find that your child when you receive that diagnosis, it can be very scary. Um, you're not sure what the future holds. Uh, everything that you thought your child might be able to do, all of a sudden your expectations change. But um, in our case, for example, my older son, Peter, who is autistic, um, I remember one time someone asking me, because I was still struggling a little bit with what's going to happen in the future and how are we going to deal with things? And someone asked me as a parent, don't we want our children to be happy? You know, yes. The answer is yes. And they asked me, is Peter happy? Oh my goodness. He's one of the most, he's one of the happiest people I've ever run into. He lights up the room. Everyone loves him. And this person asked me, he said, isn't that all we want as parents? Yes. We want our children to be happy. And children with special needs, yes, there are challenges. And I, I, I won't lie about that. But at the same time, they bring so much joy into our lives. Um, I cannot express that enough. I, I really, really can't. Um, so much joy. Uh, my son, Peter, loves unconditionally. He absolutely loves unconditionally. And it's a beautiful picture of God's grace for us. Um, I do. I wish that there was a cure for autism. Yes, uh, but uh, Peter's perfect, just the way he is. Uh, he doesn't know any different, and he is a loving, sweet, kind young man. And everybody, it's a constant praise about this child. And I know that when I was pregnant with him, we were told he might have Down syndrome. And I remember getting into an argument with the uh, perinatologist, the specialist, because we went in to see the, the specialist and 
he's giving me all these dire, you know, consequences if Peter, you know, is born with Down syndrome. And he's, and you know what? I know that you chose life and we're going to have to leave it there. Thank yes. you so very much, Laura. You're Thank welcome. you for your uh, brilliant uh, testimony. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. Until the sons of Gershon, Whitney, and Shemiah.